<laughs> it takes very specific instructions. Craig, yes. join. <laughs> oh, you gotta, no, you gotta do the little the little duck. I know, but I'm just like... Do you mean a colon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a very complex and specific process. Copies and pastes a single line of text. Listen, alright, I'm a I'm I'm not a STEM major. I don't know how this shit works. <laughs> I'm an English major. Don't judge me. Yeah, I'm I'm an English major. I know how to make words go. Mm. Um Wow, you privileged piece of shit. I'm a political science major. I don't even know how to read. <laughs> I'm a wow. STEM major. Uh I don't know how to want to live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nice. With this, this is like the perfect combination of white men to like fully understand the world. Um, yeah, the perfect combination of white men to discuss like I don't know critical theory. Obviously, everything. Well, yeah. I you think know, this time we're we're like kind of in my wheelhouse in that um, this is the article is like half big-brained anthropology ideas and half like just barely at the end trying to think of a reason why this is also like a political issue. Which is sort of what I spent most of my undergrad doing, um, in one way or another. Well, it's a good thing you did the reading. Speaking of which, well, well, well welcome everyone to, to Eric didn't do the reading. On this episode, James has done the reading. Eric has not done the reading. And Kevin has not done the reading. What are we reading today? Or what are you reading today, Mr. Uh, James? I am reading How to Change the Course of Human History or at least the part that's already happened, by David Graeber and David Wingrow. And uh, neither of y'all have done the reading. It's not very long, so if people uh, listening want to actually do the reading, they, they easily can. But uh, who are we kidding? They probably won't. Um, so the basic, <laughs> the basic goal uh, that David Graeber has in this article is to um, explain for people who don't give a shit about anthropology, which is almost everyone, something that is well known within the anthropological discipline, which is that there's kind of no such thing as human prehistory. Um, the idea that we have about human prehistory is at best wrong uh, and at worst is like a racist myth designed to justify settler colonialism. So the, the default, the thing that people assume when you talk about prehistory is um, basically the state of nature. Uh, people are sort of split on the question of whether or not life was nasty, brutish, and short, or uh, if we lived in, uh, I, I don't know what the, the tagline for the other one is, but if life was like pretty great and awesome and people were just walking around eating food off the ground and having sex all the time. Like a quasi-utopian sort of like anarcho-primitivist society. Yeah. yeah, so I guess the question, the question that that is framed here is like, was human prehistory this like, terrible, awful nightmare world that we've escaped from, that we're getting further and further away from, uh, basically the progressive idea of history? Or um, was it this utopia that we've sort of deviated from and, um, and that we should try in some ways to return to? Um, and Graver points out that in a lot of ways, the left has sort of staked its idea of human prehistory on um, that second thing being wrong, being, being correct that uh, human prehistory was awesome and great, and that, like, you know, we all went wrong with the agricultural revolution. I can agree to that. Um... Yeah, you know, as, as Theodore Kaczynski once said, 
the agricultural mm. revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Yeah, comrade Kaczynski. I, I, I don't think he said agricultural, but... uh. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, well, listen, I'm I didn't do the reading, so, you know. That's fair. Okay, I'm I imagining... I especially didn't fucking... do the reading of uh, stuff that wasn't literally assigned to me. I know, okay, I'm now imagining, like, an ancient Sumerian, like, Ted Kaczynski, like... <laughs> chiseling a, m- a manuscript <laughs> on like clay tablets <laughs> like, <laughs> no, yeah, he has like, to do it in like interpretive dance because writing is bourgeois or something <laughs> that's agriculture bad um, <laughs> it took 35,000 words to say I don't like technology <laughs> it, t- it took 35,000 words to say phone bad and then do terrorism <laughs> Like, <laughs> truly a role model for all viewers <laughs> out there. Uh, so uh, that's the that's the sort of standard argument, and a lot of uh, left wing philosophies um, have sort of aligned themselves with the idea that human prehistory was awesome. It was the good times, and we need to return to the good times in many ways. But Graeber's point here is that our ideas about human prehistory, like that argument, is just wrong from the start. The argument between nasty, brutish, and short, and uh cool naked fun times is just an incorrect argument uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which that we just don't have any evidence about what prehistory, what life in prehistoric times was like. Like no primary sources. It's all sort of gathered via... Yeah. Well, we sort of of definitionally don't have any primary sources because uh, prehistory is about the time before the invention of writing. But in terms of like before the Neolithic Revolution... All of the evidence we have, like when anthropologists, if, if tomorrow anthropologists found uh, like a shit, like a turd from uh, 800,000 years ago, they would be not that's that's too long, like 100,000 years ago, they would be very excited. That would be like really good evidence that would tell us lots of things about the human condition. So like we're their really, diet or yeah, um, we're really trying like to that. put together a story based on like very, very little evidence, um, mm-hmm. bits of bones, stuff like that. There, there's there's that one bone that has like uh, hundreds of concentric uh, lines scratched into it. I'll bet that tells us a lot about whether or not human society was epic or cringe. <laughs> yeah, I think it tells us that people have been doing weird shit for a long time. I am trying so hard not to just let that devolve into the inside joke of like stupid Dave <laughs> versus yeah. like look at Thrag- look at idiot hero. writing man. Versus, versus Ragnar the Strong, who has 1,000 wives. <laughs> and will surely be remembered for the rest of history. <laughs> yeah, have fun scratching into your bone, idiot. <laughs> yeah. It's very depressing to me that um, the, the people from our time who might be uh, important in the grand, grandest uh, scheme of things that we can, we can think of, in like, you know, when, uh, when human civilization is being dug up from the ashes, is going to be like, uh, I don't know, Dennis from the park who like yells at people and, and shits in the park sometimes. They're going to have to reconstruct a view of our society based on like rediscovered YouTube vlogs. Oh god. Uh, <laughs> they're they're gonna find they're gonna find like <laughs> film reels from like uh, the nineteen eighties talking about the superiority of American capitalism in in some like random ass time capsule and they're gonna be like, wow, these people were stupid as fuck. Agreed. Um, uh, but anyway, the the trash comparison is really good because a lot of um a lot of what we know about prehistory is actually just based on trash. 
like you know these people most of the things that they built were built out of uh out of wood and leather materials that degrade very quickly um but some of their trash was made out of bone and stones so we get a lot of their trash and not a whole lot of it, everything else and we sort of have to figure out a society what society looked like uh based on its trash and it turns out this will surprise neither of you um societies can produce very similar trash without looking even remotely similar to one another um so yeah people anthropologists really have their work cut out for them when they're like trying to figure out gender roles based on like what kind of trash got produced yeah because like as you know as we know things are like like the sort of trash would be based on like material and productive conditions like you know it's going to be like well you can't exactly make like a machine in one place and nothing in the other like you got to work with what you got and most places have wood or rocks yeah um so but that again like as you said that tells us nothing about the culture but it's it basically it only tells us about what technology was available at the time effectively yeah and sometimes not even that i mean we can imagine tools that are made entirely out of wood where we just wouldn't have a surviving specimen because uh wood wood rots homie um it would be very very rare for us to get access to something like that Mm-hmm. Um, which is why it's called the Stone Age. Uh, stone had very little to do with it. Stone is the parts that we have access to are made out of stone because stone is the thing that you can put in the ground and it stays there. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it, it probably should be called like the Leather Age or the the stone the like Wood Age or something. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, this is kind of beside the point that Graeber is trying to make, which is that a lot of um, political ideologies base their ideas about the the current state of things. Uh, on some sort of idea about what what human prehistory is like, which is why the arguments about the state of nature actually have some sort of some sort of kick to them. So when people argue about the state of nature, they're really arguing about human nature in a in a slightly different form. Like if human nature is that if we're just left to our own devices, we will produce this horrifying nightmare factory, then obviously all of the political institutions that we've created since then, have de facto legitimacy because what do you want to do you want to return to nightmare world whereas um whereas if uh left to our own devices we produce utopia then all of the political institutions have a very very high barrier to uh legitimacy because if we just abandoned all of them tomorrow we would get to live in utopia um and so graber is actually kind of trying to make a very subtle point here which is that for him these arguments are essentially the same because they're based on an idea of human nature that we don't have access to. Like they basically make the assumption that there that number one, there is something called human nature, and number two, that uh that we can get access to it through the evidence that we currently have. Yeah, no, that that is a really interesting point in that like and that's sort of like I think the best example of that um in terms of like how we have based our ideas off of like this again quote human nature is probably like thomas hobbes leviathan um Mm. which coincidentally i have also not read um but um to my knowledge that's that's sort of like that's the the dot like the foundational text of like nasty brutish and short yeah Uh, and the thing that has like influenced like all all political ideology in the wake of it so for the last like what 500 400 years or something yeah it's also like a sort of the default thing that conservatives believe about humans like if you just leave us to our own devices uh things will get real bad real fast which is why you need uh i don't know the cops and also the government Mm -hmm. 
not the government though mostly just the cops um because the government might help people hey i believe in small government like uh, a hyper militarized police state hey hey, hey um, guys here, yeah. here, here's a question all right so so thomas hobbs first first uh first stake in the ground that says the state of nature is uh is horrible all right question does the bible posit a positive state of nature or a negative state of nature kevin kevin <laughs> You know I have very strong opinions on this. Listen, is the garden the state of nature or is original sin the state of nature? Thoughts? Hmm. That, that, actually, that does sort of provide an interesting parallel to what, um, to what is, like, you know, again, like, what we said that all, like, sort of all modern political ideology is based on in terms of, like, are we moving away from this, like, from, like, a thing that was actually, like, really cool and good? Or are we moving away from nasty, brutish, and short, and life and life continually gets better um, throughout the course of history? That that is a very interesting parallel, actually, and one that I hadn't noted. So definitely a good point in bringing that up. Well, this this actually has pretty big stakes for uh, the article because uh, Graber Graber makes a pretty similar comparison. But first, I want to I want to hear Kevin's opinion. Like, do you think the state of nature is pre-fall or post-fall? I think I think that. Uh... The, the text of Genesis, which, you know, if we, if we take Genesis and the Pentateuch slash Torah as, as a single work, which uh, they should be taken as separate from the rest of the Old Testament, and especially as separate from the New Testament, then that book would probably posit uh, the state of nature as being post-fall. This actually sort of has stakes for Graeber's argument, because um, basically, like, let's just put a pin in the Garden of Eden. Eden. Um, Graver, Graber's, uh, Graber's, I prefer the Garden of Odd. The Garden of Odd. Um, okay. Um, Graver's understanding of like a left-wing account of prehistory is that first we had this utopia, right? And then we we sort of messed with the utopia. We we made a mistake because we wanted something even better than the utopia, or we wanted to change it in some way, which is that we wanted sort of an easier way to produce food. We wanted agriculture, in short. And that at the time, it seemed like a really good idea, but that once we had achieved agriculture, the implications of agriculture came unfurled, and it turned out that we had unleashed a nightmare on ourselves, and that we could never return to uh, this previous version of society. So for Graeber, these are like the same story. Like the, hu the human prehistory story that we have inherited from anthropologists and from dinguses like Rousseau is uh, exactly is it's just the secularized version of the story of the fall from the Garden of Eden. The and the the comparison there is that like the fruit um, is like sort of equivalent to the creation of agriculture, and I think like I actually think I, I don't know if this is exactly what you wanted to talk about with the with the article, but I what do you guys think about like the term? With agriculture, do you think that the implications such as things like a class society are like necessary results of it or just happened to be the result of it? Well, I think the point of the article is that we don't know. Well, I'm just talking from like a political theory standpoint. Yeah. Hey, not not knowing hasn't stopped me from having an opinion in the past. I don't see why it should start now. <laughs> it hasn't <laughs> stopped pretty much anyone. <laughs> I think the article is mainly about about like the state 
of the world before the creation of agriculture. And I would definitely say, uh, you know, maybe I'm betraying Marx a little bit here, but I would definitely say that the creation of agriculture doesn't necessarily determine what comes next in human events, but it sort of constrains us. It changes the horizon of possibilities in a way that might make certain things look more appealing and certain things less appealing or simply impossible. Well, I mean, you know, Mar Marx inherits his view of, like, uh, I guess the way that, like, the history of economies work uh, from, you know, Adam Smith and the other classical economists. You know, basically, uh, agriculture creates the division of labor, and the division of labor uh, necessarily, uh, without the correct technological progress, will lead to class division, basically. Yeah. That's my personal opinion. Uh, which is correct because it's also uh, the good political opinion, question mark? Mm. Yeah. That's a circular logic if I've ever heard it. Never. I think another, another way that anthropology takes aim at that sort of uh, worldview is by complicating the ideas about what agriculture even is or what, what um, a transition to agriculture would, would look like. Um, because That's actually another good point. There, there are there are like intermediate forms that don't necessitate some sort of class society. Like I would I would argue that horticulture doesn't require a class society, or does not create a class society. Yeah, um, um, in the same way that agriculture does, anyway. And the difference there is that um, horticulture is sort of like like a you know agriculture is like with tractors and stuff. Like you have rows and rows of corn, right? And yeah. uh, horticulture is sort of similar in that you're growing food. Uh, from plants, but it's sort of it's sort of like the lazy version. It's like if you and me and Eric decided we were going to do agriculture, what we would probably do is like you know forget about planting seeds. I'm just going to put them on the ground and see what happens. And if it grows food, I'm going to eat it. If not, I'm going to like I, I I don't know. I'm going to find more seeds. Um, it's closer to gardening. It's much less labor intensive, um, but also produces less food per per like acre. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I actually wanted to bring this up in that, like, to my knowledge, um, sort of like the indigenous peoples of North America um, had sort of that, like, that sort of, like, intermediate form of agriculture um, in which, like, they basically did things in harmony with the native ecosystems as opposed to, like, clearing land and creating, like, large, lar like, large crop, like, large spaces for single crops. Yeah, um, horticulture is also much more sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing I was going to say. I would argue that there was definitely like uh, agriculture among uh, many indigenous uh, peoples of uh, North and South, what would become North and South America. Um, mm -hmm. Horticulture certainly existed, uh, but like you don't get the Iroquois Confederation without like systematized agriculture. Or like the Inca Empire, for example, is another one I imagine. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely not. Uh, I don't think it's possible to sustain like an empire on horticulture. Um, mm -hmm. Like you not need more, space. much more. Yeah. Well, you also just need much more focused food production. Yeah, you're just gonna. I mean, I would say it's possible to sustain an empire on horticulture as long as there aren't any any bad boys doing agriculture nearby. Because if they have a higher population density and comparable weapons, they're just gonna trick you every time. So if everyone's got spears, the guys with more soldiers wins. Yep. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to ask, what do y'all think of, of this critique? Because he's basically aiming at the left. Like, he's aiming at figures like Marx, 
who have theories of history that go in a go in a straight line, basically. Mm. Like I, I can recognize it's an interesting critique, but I haven't really come to terms with whether or not I uh, fully accept it. Mm. I mean, I think it's a valid critique <clears throat> in terms of like, in terms of like, okay, well, we cannot know what was before. It's also, but it also raises the question of like, how relevant exactly is this to like the current landscape and like what you know. Like, this is obviously relevant to our understanding of human prehistory, and I'm not trying to, like, dismiss the importance of that. Um, but it's also, like, you know, the question of, like, was life, like, nasty, brutish, and short, or was it, like, this really good thing? It's like, well, we can't really return to it, and it's not like we have a great way of figuring it out. So, like, what are, like, should we not just, like, try to aim for what we perceive to be better like as of now, rather than trying to return to this like hypothetical ideal, and that's you know I don't know I don't know exactly the validity of that take. Um, yeah, I mean that makes sense to me. So so like uh, you know just taking the text on its own terms, I do think that it is sort of an interesting challenge, let's say to uh, to to like a you know the classic stagist uh, historical materialism inception of history Mm. the thing is is that uh actually i'm not necessarily sure that uh like most marxists would even like consider like the the like marx writing in in 1870 like here is step one step two steps three step four uh like step four is the good place again uh step one is the good place in the past like the good place. First of all, first of all, yeah. So first of all, I don't. I'm not sure even that Marx would agree that like the good place was. You know, I think primitive con- communism was like a like an uh, something that him and Engels uh, had different ideas about at different points in their lives. And uh, second, I think that this uh, criticism, you know, doesn't actually detract from like the Marxist idea of historical materialism because it's more of a system of, it's more like a a set of tools, a toolbox to look at the world as opposed to, you know, a formula. And, you know, figures like Trotsky came along and were like, uh, the stagists are basically wrong because you've got the theory of uneven and combined development, which, which states that, you know, if one society develops nearby, that the other society will probably follow, skipping whatever stage they had before it, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I do think it's sort of ridiculous for, for anyone to say that they have a solid idea of prehistory. And I would also say that, like, uh, the people I see using it a lot more are, are, are definitely on the right, because I think that the left often has a much more mutable idea of what human nature is, Whereas the right will often stake their gl- stake their claim that uh, you know human nature is is evil, you know essentially fallen man uh, is incapable of improving and uh, becoming you know some something non selfish and non sinful, you know even even the secular right wingers. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's um, a conclusion that Graeber would like a lot is this idea that we should pretty much abandon the concept of the state of nature altogether and uh, or, or of like human nature even. 
and pursue the questions of our prehistoric origins as mainly a technical question, mainly a question that we're simply curious about rather than having these wide ranging implications for what society can, should, or could look like since uh, you know technology exists. Uh, the possibilities are incredibly different now than they were then. Um, so. What do you mean technology didn't exist? Grog have stick is great technology. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I guess to some extent, anthropologists do make this argument that uh, there's no such thing as human beings without technology. Uh, the creation of technology was the, was the same moment that uh, human beings came into the world. Oh my god, so you're actually telling me that Grog have stick is great technology? <laughs> yes. Grog have stick is not only the invention of technology, but the invention of man. <laughs> uh, which is why we need, to, we need to invent a time machine. We need to invent a time machine and kill Grog so that we can return to <laughs> Return to fish. <laughs> I would have stayed in the primordial soup if I knew there were going to be days like this. So for Graver, the reason these questions are charged and don't don't have like a purely uh, technical issue, like they're not technical, they they have a, a charge to them, is that for the most part he sees the political center. So that's that's liberals as viewing the the sort of preemptive foreclosure of human possibility. He views that whole thing as being rooted in our ideas about human prehistory, that we we sort of invented inequality at the same time that we invented agriculture. And that short of like uninventing agriculture or something, there's not really any way that we can permanently get rid of inequality. And then instead what we have to do is sort of nibble around the edges of, of this massive social problem, make it slightly better, but without ever ever getting rid of it. So for Graeber, the main issue is um, some leftists, but mostly uh, liberals who view um, human nature as being uh, basically, you get you can have agriculture, you can have human nature, and you can have equality. Uh, you can have two of those, but you can't have all three. I don't know if that made sense. Hmm. Yeah, no that that makes sense. In that, like, it, like if we move towards this like hypothetical ideal society in which you know we have enough food for everyone and we can sustain like you know like an advanced technological and um, society where like where agriculture is not only present but mostly automated. Um, it's like, well, this has moved away from, like, what human nature is supposed to be. Or, like, do you even think there is a thing as human nature? So, I, I've heard, like, I think I've heard Chomsky talk a little bit about this. Um, and in that regard, it's like, there's, I think there's a certain range of, like, of dispositions that can exist within humanity. So, in that regard, it's not, there's not so much as a a thing is like a defined human nature so much as there are bounds on it if that makes sense like it's almost like the overton window yeah but but like what are those bounds like can you give me an example i i actually so i i definitely like believe in the bounds but i don't really have like a proper example nor do i have any hard evidence to back it up so in that sense i may actually need i may actually need to reconsider that that opinion I mean, I don't think that's a flaw. I don't think that's a flaw of your position in particular. Uh, I don't think anyone has any hard evidence to back up their theories of human nature. Um, I can't. I can't even think of a way that you would have hard evidence for that sort of claim. Nah, I've got a spicy hot take, and my evidence is spectral in variety. I saw it. I've seen it. It was revealed to me, James. <laughs> it was revealed to me in a dream. <laughs> Not in a dream. 
I was awake when it happened. <laughs> so I was on drugs, right? Uh-huh. In Minecraft, because I would never incriminate myself on a podcast. I can't believe I can't believe you did the shrooms plugin in Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, wow, crazy dude. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> uh it was revealed to me that human nature is in fact not necessarily altruistic and good, but instead seeking of uh community as well as Freedom from oppression. So, so like, every political ideology will basically make a claim to both of those things. Like, even fascism says uh, freedom and, uh, and community are, like, the things it strives for. You've got the community of the race, and you've got uh, freedom from inferior races. Uh, you've got liberalism. You've got, in, in which you have the, the community of the democratic state held together by social norms and institutions. You've got freedom as in freedom from bad types of government. And you've got things like communism, which uh, freedom from uh, workplace exploitation and class society uh, oppression. And you've got community as in the community of the international working class. And uh, I would challenge you to find a ideology that has ever been politically relevant that doesn't do both of those things i was gonna say something and then you said uh politically relevant so <laughs> oh, were you gonna talk about and caps i was gonna okay uh that was the second <laughs> thought that entered my head but the first was positivism. <laughs> uh but that's again that's not really a real ideology that has ever been relevant at any point in history um outside of like i mean it was a you said there have been like Pesetas movements in South America at times, but yeah, not not to not to um actually, but like the biggest communist parties in places like Uruguay were at times the Pesetists. So yeah. I, I think the thing I think the thing is that um, human nature can best be formulated as as maybe and let me know if, if y'all think this is bullshit. Human nature can be formulated as like a series of needs, and some of those needs are pretty trivial and obvious. Uh, you got to eat, you got to breathe. Um, and then the ones that we disagree about are the more abstract ones. Like you need some sense of community, you need some sense of autonomy, you need some sense of freedom. And then the, the realm of politics or of political disagreement is of disagreeing what the actual about what the actual content of those needs are and how they're best fulfilled. I like mine better because I saw it in a trip. <laughs> yeah. In Minecraft. Um, yeah. A trip down the stairs. <laughs> As I was tumbling, God came to me. <laughs> Shortly after I hit my head. I know because I saw the I know because I saw a bright flash of white light, which uh as represented uh in the drawings of Hildegard of Bingen, uh, Saint Hildegard of Bingen. Um you've got the heavenly hosts surrounding a glowing white circle representing the unknowability of God. You've gotten so deep in the biblical apocrypha that I don't know how much of what you're saying is just like, is just screwing around, uh, or like if Saint Hildegard of Bingen is a real person. Of course, Saint Hildegard of Bingen is a real person. She wrote bangers like uh, uh, "Epic Chant Number Seventy Seven Billion." <laughs> I. I Eric, here's here's the down low. Here's the down low on uh, on on my form of Christianity, right? Uh, 
here's here's the down low on the like correct approach to Christianity. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Once you get to the point where you're like, man, I can't tell if I actually like believe this, if this is my like most dearly held belief, or if this is a funny meme. That's how you know you're like in communion with the divine. <laughs> <laughs> the sheer, the unknowability of God is actually just being irony poisoned. <laughs> my God. <laughs> We've done right. it. We've cracked the code. We're incredibly far off, off the beaten track here. Um, and uh, I think we covered basically everything I wanted to cover about this. Uh, and significantly because... more. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's one more there's one more thing. And I, I want to know if we should we should talk about it or if we should just cut it off there, which is some of the actual like archaeological and anthropological developments that have led anthropologists to abandon the question of human nature. Go for it. I yeah, I think that's definitely a very interesting topic that I would love to explore. Okay. So anthropology is sort of the discipline that has the best shot at answering the question of human nature. And since about the 70s, I believe, maybe the 80s, uh, the consensus has been that anthropology is just not going to, it just, just doesn't have an answer to that question. Um, and anthropologists are, are you know, not uh, sugarcoating the implications there. Their opinion is that they, do, they still have the best shot at answering the question. The question is just either not getting answered at all or not getting answered anytime in the near future. Or, third option, is unanswerable. Yeah, exactly. So one of the attempts, one of the most famous attempts in anthropology occurred um, upon the discovery and popularization of a, of a group called, uh, I think they're called the San Bushmen. Um, Bushmen is, uh, depending on what part of the world you live in, either a racial slur or a really bad racial slur. Um, so I'm just going to call them the people who live in the Kalahari. Um, there are or lots like of different Kalaharians groups that live. Something uh, like that. Well, well, there are lots of different people. Um, but it's a place called the Kalahari Desert, and a significant number of the people who live there um, are hunter-gatherers. They're foragers. They forage just like uh, our, our ancient ancestors did. Mm-hmm. And the assumption, the assumption for the longest time, was uh, that we have to rush, that this culture is being destroyed, their way of life is being taken from them, and that this is our last best chance to get a, get a glimpse on human prehistory, prehistory to understand uh, what human society was like before the invention of agriculture. So waves and waves of anthropologists rushed out to the Kalahari. They learned all sorts of, uh, all sorts of languages so that they could communicate with these people and write, you know, big-brained books about uh, the way that our ancestors lived. The issue, of course, is that, um, so I, I, had a, I had a professor once uh, show me a map of where there are known tribes of hunter-gatherers. Um, the Kalahari is a, is a big hotspot, the Kalahari Desert. Um, the Arctic up in Canada is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the desert in um, Australia. Uh, do you notice? Do you notice anything about these places? That they're places where agriculture is like effectively impossible. Yeah, yeah, they're places that fucking suck. They they blow shit. Um, <laughs> and and uh, that's not that's not me being like culturally insensitive. A lot of the people who live in these places uh, will openly tell you like, yeah, this place sucks, and I wish I didn't live here. Um, I mean, that's how I talk about where I live. 
<laughs> Understandable. So, uh, the critique, the critique that was leveled um, in, you know, a much longer form in uh, in the 1970s that ended this project was that you can't. These people are are not, you know, the heirs of an undisturbed lineage of hunter gatherers. These are poor people who have been forced to the edge of the earth. They've been forced to the the parts that nobody else wanted, and they're scraping out a living um, in the best way that they know how which is, in this case, hunting and gathering. And that these people bear very little resemblance to the groups of our, our ancestors who lived in, like, central France and hunted, I don't know, whatever animals live in central France. So that was a big part of the reason that that project was eventually abandoned by anthropology, along with uh, archaeological finds. Um, Graper goes into detail about how there are, uh, there's clear evidence for, like, rich people uh, long before the existence of agriculture. Which sort of causes a problem if you think that class only came about because of agriculture. Yeah, I mean, I think that something, I think that, like, the only thing that's really, like, inseparable from agriculture, or that the only thing that could only exist via via the creation of agriculture is writing. Um, Why is that? So I my take on this is that like writing was not necess- not a necessary development of agriculture but that the only way to develop writing was to first develop agriculture. Be- and that my my argument there is that a written form of communication requires a medium. Um it requires something like clay, it requires paper, something like that. And when you're a hunter-gatherer society and when you do not have when you do not have a reason to stay in the same place um, carrying around those materials uh, is very difficult. So, like, unless you have a more sedentary, established lifestyle like those in agricultural civilizations, writing is actually something that will just slow you down when you when oral history works just fine. I'm not super convinced by that argument because part of what Graeber is saying is that a lot of what we think we know about human prehistory is wrong. Um, modern hunter gatherers move around a lot because they live in places like the Arctic and the Kalahari. But if you didn't live in a place like that, you might even be sedentary. Hmm. Okay. Well, I yeah, I suppose I suppose the argument is more about like a sedentary lifestyle rather than agriculture. But I think that like I think that a sedentary lifestyle does not uh, does not indicate agriculture, but agriculture like but it does the other way around. You know. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, okay. Anthropology is kind of like this, but I, I can actually think of counterexamples. Uh, hmm. There are plenty of agricultural systems in which you uh, plant a field very lazily, like the way that me and Kevin would do it if someone told us we had to plant a field, where you just grab a bunch of seeds, you just throw them just all over the ground, um, and then you make a mental note to come back here in like a year. But that's horticulture, right? I, I'm referring to the more established like wheat, like, you know, wheat, grain, you know, whatever sorts of production that like you know, that ancient civilizations had in which there were large fields, like, of not necessarily monocultures, but, like, they were, they were plowed, they were, like, done methodically, and they were, like, very close to where the civilization was, if not just inside it. Yeah, that's true. God damn it, Eric is using uh, my own concepts against me. Okay, okay, okay. No, 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 let's, let's back up a bit to, uh, to to the writing writing thing, because uh, uh-huh. because let's talk about the real reason why writing is able to develop. And uh, James, you can let me know if this is uh, bullshit based on our clearly flawed evidence about 
existing hunter-gatherer societies. But the only reason why uh, writing uh, gets invented is basically to keep track of taxes. Uh, all evidence points to ancient civilizations' first uses of writing uh, being used to keep track of how much shit whom owns who owes to whomstever else. Uh, you know, like ancient Sumerian cuneiform, keeping track of uh, how many bushels of grain are being traded to wh whoever. And, uh, you know, before that, uh, there's, there's no real reason to have writing because any debt that's owed can basically be kept track of in people's heads. And, uh, you know, if your family owes someone else's family, like uh, a favor equivalent to you helped them shear their sheep and then repair their tent, and then uh, gave them a wooden spoon. Like that's not really something that you have to write down. And I, I agree with that. And that's that's actually something I sort of like forgot to mention in my original um, my original claim about writing is that like writing also develops in societies where not everyone knows each other, um, and that you it it develops in places where like society like institutions have developed to keep track of things because the populations are no longer like small hunter-gatherer groups that are no larger than 50 people, right? Um, they they extend. Like, there are thousands, potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of people in these civilizations. And in that regard, it is impossible to keep track of all social relations without some form of, like, writing or some form of, like, recorded communication. Doesn't necessarily have to be writing, but the technological capacity is not there for, like, sound recordings. Yeah, I mean, YouTube videos and podcasts would be better, but they also haven't invented the iron plow yet, so. <laughs> yeah, just give your homie a phone call and be like, hey, uh, I got impaled by, like, a boar again. Can you help? Um, also, uh, I think in modern society, we, we, we underestimate just how cringe uh, writing actually is. It takes, it takes uh, every person, like, years of really hard work to learn just the basics of reading and writing. And uh, if we didn't basically enslave all children and force them to do this, uh, no one would ever decide on their own that this is something they cared about. Hmm. I mean, even Socrates uh, apparently had like was anti-writing, um, if you can imagine that. Um, okay, like obviously Socrates, known haver of hot takes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Side note, I want that to be like my title in the future, just haver of hot takes. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, but but uh Socrates claimed that like writing would make like would make children like lazy, it would make them forgetful. Um because it's like, well, they don't have to remember anything, they can just write it down and come back to it later. And to his credit, he wasn't actually that wrong on that point. Um in that like that's actually like a result that you know was observed and that like that's something that is happening with technology nowadays is like well why do i need to remember this i can just google it um and there's sort of like a shift in focus there's a shift in focus of like where our brain power is directed um like it's not so much focused on like remembering things anymore uh, uh yes socrates uh hater of things being not remembered Famous for his ideas not being filtered through Plato, a guy who totally didn't have any different opinions from him, but of course we'll never know. Because uh He didn't write anything down. Yeah, those kids who who didn't write anything down, uh mm, uh they're dead. Yeah. I mean to be fair, to be fair, Socrates was was influenced by uh by Grungus, the guy who thought that um 
the guy who thought that, you know, if we beat up the animals with rocks, that'll just make you less less strong, who was sadly beaten to death with rocks. <laughs> God, we never do good old impalings anymore. We always do our executions by stoning. Don't you know you gotta get really sprayed with the blood of your loved ones who you've just accused of heresy to really <laughs> feel that social cohesion getting stronger? Remember, kids, beating someone to death in front of the tribe fosters a caring environment. <laughs> I think that's probably where we should where we should uh, wrap things up. Uh, does anyone anyone have any grand conclusions here? Pesadism good, agriculture bad. Uh, the best knowledge is given to you by drugs. <gasps> Remember, kids, stay in drugs. Don't do school. Um, or else you'll end up starting a podcast. Oh God, <laughs> couldn't be me. Um, My parents are so proud of me right now. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that whole awkward pause in. That's staying in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, grand grand conclusions. I don't really know if there's any like grand conclusion here, other than that, like we can sort of summarize what we've said in that, like, um, there is really no way to know exactly what cultures, what cultures and societies existed before the dawn of agriculture, because that fundamentally changed the world. And that there is, and that because there wasn't really any great system of recording what was going on before the world changed, that that is just something that is potentially going to be lost to us forever. And that we only get farther away from it every day because things continue to decay. You know, maybe like ancient relics are destroyed. Yeah, I think again. I I would like to make the claim that uh that writing is a uh, is sort of a development of a sedentary society, which uh is made significantly easier through the advent of agriculture. But that's not really like a grand conclusion that's hugely related to the point of of the article. Um, yeah. All right. So I'm cheating because uh I I have bits of the article because I actually did the reading, unlike you nerds. Boo. Uh, okay, I wanted to be faithful to the title of the podcast. Yeah, never, never change, Eric. And also, and also, please don't, please don't ever learn how to read. Otherwise, it's going to really mess with our pod podcast concept. As a STEM major, you have my oath that I will never <laughs> learn how to read. <laughs> so I think my conclusion is basically what Eric said earlier about not allowing our conceptions of, of prehistory to um, shape what we think the future could possibly look like. Um, and I think that's a that's a way to like you know, get to, we, we sort of get to abandon prehistory and keep it at the same time in that these technical questions of like what human society was like before the dawn of agriculture can still be very interesting and we should still try to answer them if we can, but we shouldn't let that limit what we think the possibilities for human beings are. Yeah, I mean, I am personally in favor of any argument that opens up the, like, the potential for like human freedom of choice and like of choice, autonomy, and freedom. Because, like, I, I consider myself to be, like, a humanist in that regard. Um, in that, like, I have a lot of faith in, again, like, not necessarily, like, not really the nature of humanity, but, like, the knowledge that people can be very good, uh, can be extremely creative, compassionate, um, intelligent, and seek freedom for themselves and others. You don't get to that two epic wrap-ups. Well, okay, here, I'll let you have your epic wrap-up, then. I already did it. It was three sentences. Anyway, if you guys want to find us... Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, uh, where should where should you go? Do you guys have social media you want to shout out? Um, 
should we create like a Twitter for this podcast? I'm going to create it whether you guys want it or not. <laughs>